0: This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. As you might remember from science class, there are 23 pairs of chromosomes that make up your DNA. Well, that's where 23andMe.com, a genetic testing service, gets its name. 23andMe allows you to have access to information about your DNA. You can find out how your genes may influence your health, your ancestry, and even physical traits with over 65 online genetic reports personalized to you. So, how does 23andMe work? You simply purchase a kit on their website, 23andMe.com. When the test arrives at your home, you provide a saliva sample by spitting into a tube, the best part, and then you send it back. Once your DNA has been analyzed, you'll get to learn more about what makes you, you. We are all genetically 99.5% the same. Wouldn't you like to know more about what's in that last .5% that makes you unique? With 23andMe, you can. To order your kit today, visit 23andme.com slash collider. That's the number 23andme.com slash collider. A science story, huh? Is NYU they scientist? Uh, I, I it felt, felt I I right. I so
1: and I just happened, like, well, I figured it wow. out. It was that tall. golden moment. Because science was on my side.
0: Hi everyone, I'm Ben Lilly, and welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true personal stories about science. This week we'll bring you two stories about observational errors. A journalist gets stranded in the Antarctic ice, and a neuroscientist tries to analyze her romantic problems with science. Our first story is from Alec Jha, It was recorded in November 2016 at Hackney House in London, England theme was adventure.
1: I don't think I realized how much danger I was in until a moment of stillness that happened. And that moment of stillness happened when I was 50 meters away from a helicopter that had just landed and was blowing sort of um, air downwards to an extent where it's very hard to stand up. I was 50 meters away from the helicopter. We were both on a very thin sheet of ice and this ice was floating about two kilometers from the coast of East Antarctica. Now, this, this helicopter was, according to the captain of the ship I'd just walked off, he said, and we've been trapped on this ice for a couple of weeks, by the way, just to give you some context. We've been trapped on a ship on this ice and he said this helicopter, this enormous beast of a helicopter with Chinese symbols on it was the only way off this ice and back to safety. Now, I don't get myself into these situations often. Um, uh, I ask anyone who knows me. I'm a a massive comfort bunny, basically. I don't like anywhere that doesn't have strong coffee, Wi-Fi. Uh, I don't really like leaving zone one, if I can be honest. Uh, And uh, if I do... If I do, then it's usually with a lot of people, support staff, and uh, a rescue beacon. So um, this was an odd situation for me to be in. Um, But uh, the the reason I was there was because about four weeks earlier, we left New Zealand on a ship to go to Antarctica to follow in the footsteps of a great Antarctic explorer, Douglas Mawson. Um, You may not have heard of him. Um, He is up there with Scott and Amundsen and uh, and, uh, Shackleton as one of the people who really opened up Antarctica in 19... 13 1912 and um, and you know he was a scientist more than the others and the others were explorers great explorers interested in science mawson was a scientist who happened to be interested in exploring and so um uh, i'm a journalist and i you know i cover whatever i can and the only reason i became a journalist was to meet interesting people and go to interesting places and uh, I, you know as a reporter you meet interesting people as i said and one of those interesting people i met was a scientist who went to antarctica quite often and i'd interviewed him for something uh, years and years before and i said as a joke at the end listen if you go back to antarctica do you mind Taking me along and he said yeah, oh, yeah fantastic hilarious you can't leave zone one we had this same joke <laughs> off we go we we had that joke and uh, he left and uh, a year a year and a half before this expedition left he rang me up one day he lived in australia and he said to me alok um uh, do you want to come to antarctica with me were you serious when you said that and i found myself saying yes uh, and uh, it was a Sunday morning, I remember. I, was, I couldn't get reception at home quite, uh, standing by the window. So, I said, did you just ask me to come to Antarctica with you? Are you serious about this? And he said, yeah, you have to tell me now. Do you want to come? It's a year and a half time. I'm trying to raise money to go, do you want to come? I said, yeah, sure, why not? And I just see if you can persuade your newspaper, I was working at the Guardian at the time, to just cover it in some way. And I was like, sure, why not? Yeah, let's, this is easy, isn't it? Um, so a year and a half, a year and a half of, of persuading later, we were, me and my colleague, Lawrence, we're standing on the ship, taking selfies of ourselves, tweeting the last bars of reception as we left Bluff in New Zealand to go to Antarctica. This was amazing. Uh, and, you know, I just hadn't considered in that year and a half of persuading people what it actually might be like to go to Antarctica. It just hadn't occurred to me to think about it, to be honest, apart from to buy a big coat. Uh, and so uh, so, I, I had a big coat and some thermals. Uh, and apart from that, i T- t- literally hadn't thought about it, so um, uh, we 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 reversed, if that's the word that ships do, out, uh, out of the out of the um, out of the out uh, of the the harbour, and taking my bars of reception. This is me. I'm about to go to Antarctica. Isn't it great? Suddenly feeling incredibly sick because you know, the, the whole thing was, everything was moving in three dimensions in a way that I hadn't quite understood that ships do. Um, I'd never really been on a ship before, if I'm honest. Um, no one had told me that it involved ten days across the Southern Ocean, which is the roughest sea in the world. Um, and, you know, obviously I got seasick immediately. I had to spend the first couple of days sort of lying in my bunk, sort of screaming, thinking I need to get off this ship immediately. I had a month to go before I was allowed anywhere off the ship at all. Anyway, the, the point is, that it, I got over the seasickness, go me, and uh, got used got used to the sort of the weird gravity of the ship and you know as I'm a former physicist so I was really intrigued by the gravity because you'd go downstairs and suddenly the ship would fall underneath you and you'd float in the air for a bit then suddenly hit the ground you know you learn very quickly not to walk around with hot drinks you um <laughs> You learn to hold something wherever you're going, and it's amazing. Uh, And uh, your body sort of understands that, uh, you know, you need to just compensate for the movement. Anyway, uh, it it was an incredible experience in many respects. We saw wonderful things, many, many penguins, many seals, all these things. We went to um, the edge of Antarctica. We drove across Antarctica in um, what, what we were told were basically boats with wheels so that if we went through the ice we'd float um, although having said that on one occasion when that did happen the thing sank uh so i wasn't i wasn't on it i wasn't on it so fortunately you know it was okay uh, 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 anyway, so we, we went to the, to, to the Mawson's Huts. Mawson's Huts still exist today, 100 years later. They're sort of looked after, very hard to get to. So we had to drive across 150 kilometers of ice. Uh, and it's not easy driving across ice because you know it does, it's not flat and easy like a road. Bits of it melt and you can't get over certain bits because some bits are thinner than others. You, can, you need to be really careful. Fortunately, I wasn't in charge of any of this. And so I was just was a passenger. And at one point... In in that area where Mawson's huts were, there's a, there's a there's a hill behind it, or a mountain, I suppose you'd call it. Uh, behind it, where I, I remember I stood on this mountain by myself, um, and the, the scientists I was with were actually doing real science. I was just a passenger, really. Uh, I, I went onto this mountain and looked around in uh, in my big coat, and thinking, you know, this is the furthest I've ever been from anyone I ever know. You know, all the people I care about, all the people I love. It's 11,000 miles from anybody. Um, and then thinking also I've got to file a story for The Guardian. And so I wrote that, I wrote that and sent it from there using the satellite equipment which they told me not to use because it was so expensive but which is 20 megabytes 20 dollars rather per megabyte of information and websites these days are hugely complicated so if you download anything it takes uh, we spent thousands of pounds Um, and for a newspaper that makes no money you know that's a big thing so um, you know so uh, so hundreds of I was actually not thousands tens of thousands of pounds Um, so anyway we'd done all this we were turning back towards New Zealand we'd done all this amazing stuff we were turning back towards New Zealand and what you learn about Antarctica is that the, traveling around there is not like you know, taking the tube to Chiswick or something. You, you can't get there in a certain time. You have to be accepting of the fact that you have a, a what my captain told me was a book of intentions. You might want to go one mile. You might want to go 10 miles. You may not achieve that in a day, depending on the weather. You have a book of intentions mediated by the weather. And so every day, uh, we'd, we'd hope to get somewhere. We may or may not get there, but depending on how the weather behaved. And the weather in Antarctica changes constantly. It's a, it's, it's a fluid, uh, complex, a horribly painful thing if you have to stand outside in it and we had to stand outside in it all the time to get our satellite connections um, and um the day we wanted to go back to new zealand the day we turned the ship around again if not, i don't know if that's the correct terminology but we you know pointed ourselves back to new zealand um The weather changed and the weather changed all the time that was okay but i remember later looking at a photograph of that day and looking at the distance and there was a sort of a black smudge in the distance and that was the clouds that was the wind coming towards us and essentially we woke up the next morning hoping to have been an open ocean uh moving away from the antarctic uh but actually we were still where we we were the night before not only were we there we were also stuck in a lot of ice Uh, ice all around and we could see in the distance about two kilometers away open ocean and two kilometers behind us the antarctic continent so you know we're stuck and this sheet of ice had just appeared and what happens is that around antarctica there's lots and lots of floating ice uh, pack ice uh, a couple of meters thick and it floats around and gets moved by the winds and it you know gets to if the winds push it in one direction it just sort of solidifies and stays there it's just that is the that is the environment Um, And many ships get stuck and then the wind changes and they leave again. Uh, We thought the wind might change. Uh, The next morning, the wind hadn't changed uh, and we had noticed actually the wind had got worse. And now instead of being two kilometers from the edge of the uh, open ocean, we're now 20 kilometers from the edge of the open ocean, uh, still two kilometers behind. And we were being compressed because the wind was just forcing itself this way towards us. Imagine the continent behind me. And the, the, the ship itself was being slowly crushed uh, against the continent the, the ship was strong so it wouldn't get damaged too easily but it was being really forced and the ice was thickening up all around us and you know i said to you at the beginning i didn't realize how dangerous any of this was i didn't realize the end, uh, what that was all about i thought this that when people said to me that, w- that the winds would change we would get out that's what would happen and every day i believed that um, but what no one told me until much later, and which perhaps should have been scary, is that the icebergs all around us, which I thought were beautiful, by the way, and you know, if you ever get to see an iceberg with your own eyes, please go and take the chance. It's incredible to see. Um, these things which are the size of cities, you know, 50 meters from the surface of the ocean to hundreds of meters below, these beautiful objects whipped into shape by the winds and the water, the things which we you know people have written about through all of exploring history and seen You know, it's ruined civilizations and minarets and and columns and all sorts of things within these structures, which I would stare at and take pictures of. These things are actually deathly things because whereas the surface ice moves because of the winds, and we would move within that ice because of the winds, the icebergs move because of the currents underwater. So they move through this, uh, this ice on the surface as if it wasn't even there. So whereas we were stuck, these... Icebergs could move in any direction; and could come towards us. You know, we would nothing. We'd been comp- we would have been completely erased by one of these things. No one told me that until <laughs> six months later. So I was just looking at them as beautiful objects. Um, we were stuck for a couple of days and uh, it, lo- it looked like the wind and the weather wasn't going to change. So on Christmas day in 2013, I remember, uh, we were having a fantastic dinner, a Christmas lunch, actually, considering we were so far away from any civilization, amazing Christmas dinner, I had a Christmas jumper on everything. Um, and, and, um, and, uh, and, uh The the captain sent out a mayday. And in Antarctica, when you send out a mayday, uh, when any ship sends out a mayday, because it's such a remote place, because it's a place that's very difficult to get to, every ship in that region comes to your assistance. Whatever they're doing, whether they're going on a six-month expedition to the South Pole, or whether they're they're taking hundreds of researchers somewhere else, they just converge because they know that one day, they will also be in that situation. They need everyone to help. So they just, they they drop everything. And it costs a lot of money to get into Antarctica. So it costs a lot of money to do this rescue. This, the ships began to converge towards us, but they're all very far away. The very first one that um, sort of made any sort of headway towards us was a French uh, ship, uh, a French um, icebreaker. It wasn't really an icebreaker, it was more of an ice strengthened ship. called the astrolabe and the astrolabe got to the edge of the ice realized it was way too thick and just went no I'm not going into this ice Uh, no Uh, screw you I'm going back to my wine so um, they they went sorry guys they did they were amazing they went off the next ship that came along about a day later on the edge of the ice was a Chinese icebreaker huge thing and it was on its way to make uh, a Chinese base Uh, and um, um, I'm not going to do Chinese accent. (laughs) Um, um, so they, 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 uh, they were on their way to make a Chinese base, and the Chinese have lots of bases in Antarctica. This is a fifth one. Huge icebreaker. And it can't get to the edge of the ice, and um, um, 20, 20 kilometers away. And we heard, and we heard uh, uh, a, three, a few days later, a crackle over the radio saying, you know, we're coming, we're coming, uh, we're going to rescue you, don't worry. It was wonderful. Um, and and uh, we didn't see it until maybe a few days later, we saw this red dot on the horizon as it was coming towards us. And I was told that what would happen is that this icebreaker would come to the ship um, and carve its way through, and then essentially turn around and carve a way through the ice, and we'd follow in the channel that it would make out to open ocean. And then it would carry on its way, we'd go back to New Zealand. Brilliant. We all got excited we drank uh drank whatever booze we had um hugged each other made vines and sent them Do you remember vine uh uh, uh, uh anyway we, we we made those anyway we made them we sent them off and it was it was wonderful um and um i went to sleep that night i'm thinking next morning i'm going to see this enormous hull of this red amazing chinese vessel next to us and i threw open the curtains of my cabin to see that it was still right there on the horizon. It's like, this is, this, is, this is problematic. Why is it not closer to us? Well, it turns out the ice was thicker than they thought. So they carried on trying. The next morning, it was still on the horizon. And then the third morning, they said, we can't actually get to you. Sorry, guys. Uh, it's just too thick. This ice is too thick. And this was a massive icebreaker, and it couldn't get to us. So what's the next option? Well, the Australians had an icebreaker too, they, which was a couple of days away, on its way to Casey Base to refuel that. Um, and, so, and so it was on its way now and it would take two more days and we waited and we waited and um, we thought right great th- th- this will do the same thing it will come to us Carver Channel we'll go behind it excellent um, and, and I remember writing all this stuff out sending it off and this is what's happening um, and thinking to myself no one's interested in this are they turns out I was completely wrong the whole world because it was that moment between Christmas and New Year where there's no news was fascinated by this story <laughs> And we were getting interview requests from CNN, ABC, Radio New Zealand, you know, the BBC, IT, everybody was getting in touch with us. And um, our internet bill was enormous at this stage. Uh, and, and so we thought, screw it, why don't we just do these interviews? We even set up a little tent on top of our ship where we could sort of sit in relative warmth to do these Skype interviews and stuff into all these places. And we kept doing this to sort of keep our minds busy whilst we didn't get rescued. Uh, and so this ship, the Aurora Australia, the australian ship came to the edge of the ice and started to make its way in we heard about this brilliant excellent it's going to come got 2 kilometers in and decided to stop at that point because it said uh, the captain had never seen ice like this he said and we're not going to get in there because we'll just get stuck as well so we thought shit what do we do now um and and at this point i remember thinking um what, what are our options? I mean, what, what do we do? There were two other icebreakers much further away. One was the US ship, the Polar Star, which was actually in Australia at the time. So it would take about 12 days to get to us. And um, an even bigger ship than that, uh, a Russian one, an icebreaker, uh, which, was, which was somewhere in New Zealand. So it would take ages to get to us. We, we, we obviously didn't know what to do. We thought, do we have to wait for another two weeks before anything happens? But then there was, a, there was another option, which they kept as reserve. And the reserve option was maybe they could send a helicopter to land next to your ship there's just just a maybe um and and that would pick people up and take them to the chinese ship because it was a chinese helicopter the chinese ship which is called the snow dragon uh would send its helicopter and the the, the helicopter itself was called the snow eagle and the, 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 it would send a snow eagle to us and but the problem was that was nowhere for this snow eagle to land because the ice was potentially very dangerous and you, know, you couldn't just walk on this thing. So it took us a few days to work out that perhaps there was a portion of the ice which was sort of strong enough for the uh, helicopter to sort of hover over essentially, sort of not switch its rotors off to give the full weight. And if we were to build a helipad there, then um, <laughs> it, it could come to us. The question is, how do you build a helipad? I mean, you need concrete and stuff like that. So what we, what, what, what they said, no, you don't need to do that. What you need to do is get your get the crew of the ship to essentially just stamp out a helipad like let's just walk around and just compress the snow on top of the ice just be careful not to fall through while you're doing it uh and so so that's what happened Uh, on on new year's eve 2013 that's what we did we had groups of us walking out onto this ice to stamp out a helipad and because we had no markings of no paint or anything we we put an h for a helipad in a circle using chocolate powder um and um there's lots of that on board. I have no idea why. Uh, anyway, so th- there it was, and this was the helipad. And uh, we were told that at any point this helicopter could come if the ships didn't arrive in time. Uh, it, was a, it was a backup option just there. And what you have to do is you have to have a bag packed, and the bag can only contain um, some underwear, your toothbrush, a passport, and one object that you want to keep because the rest of it was just lost at that point so we packed these bags and every morning we'd be told oh the helicopter might come tonight but the, the problem with helicopters in antarctica is it's incredibly dangerous because the slightest wind would knock this thing out and there's no way you can just get easy uh, access to i don't know fuel or repairs in antarctica so this thing had to be uh, completely perfect in terms of weather for a good four or five hours and there is no period of four or five hours around uh, the coast of antarctica where there is perfect weather so we did we weren't expecting that as an option. We were thinking the ships would come to us. The, the, the ships just couldn't reach us. They could not reach us, and we got resigned every morning, thinking today the ship's going to come or something's going to happen. And then by the evening, going, okay, guys, it's another night in the uh, in the uh, in the ship stuck in the ice all the while thinking icebergs all around. Uh, obviously, I didn't know that, but uh, everyone else who was much more intelligent than me would understand that. And we, we got to just uh, desi- uh, doing things to distract ourselves on the ship. One of the things that uh, happened was that um, on, on, the, um, on the 1st of January, uh, we again were interviewed by Anderson Cooper, because uh, that's what we did. Uh, and, and I remember thinking, I remember that we were interviewed sort of four o'clock in the afternoon our time, and it was before midnight in New York. Uh, and he interviewed us with Kathy Griffin to be projected onto the screen into Times Square. And so we were there on Times Square uh, talking about our experience. And um, actually, we were warmer than they were in New York City at the time, uh, so, which, was which was funny. Um, but I remember, I remember that, that, that day, uh, it was another day of disappointment. We weren't getting, we weren't getting out. And uh, people started to get worried at this point because we, we thought, how much food do we have left? Um, uh, how easy is it to get food into this place? Because any. Any, we, no one could reach us it wasn't easy to just like send anything our way the helicopter couldn't reach nothing I, I started to think have we got food left i remember what's being slightly worried when the food went from three course dinners to two course dinners um and and one day um, they actually even said uh, can you come into the kitchen to help us make these these um the, the crew was russian uh, the russians have this really amazing recipe of dumplings called palmini come and help us make those. And I thought at this point, hang on a minute, if we're making the food now, then that must be slightly worrying. Um, we had the Palmini that day. It was, it was the new year, it was 2nd of January, 2014. We had the Palmini, it was five o'clock. And an hour later, an hour later, there was a message over the tannoy system of the ship that just said, right guys, this is it, we're going. And that was it, that was all the notice we had and um uh, and it meant and we'd been drilled by the way we had our bag we were told that you're going to be in a group of 12 and there were going to be six groups of 12 each of you would stand on the ice wait for the helicopter to land and then you would march onto this helicopter get on it would take you to the uh, the next the, the ship and then you'd get off that end so i remember standing next to the ship i was in the second group that went out and as the helicopter landed it blew up every single Object, uh, loose bit of snow. So you couldn't see anything in front of you. All you had was the idea that you would hold someone in front of you and someone behind you would hold. And so there was a group of 12 of us, like a caterpillar. And because you couldn't see anything at all, you had to look down and just step into the footprints of the person in front of you because this ice was not something you wanted to walk on. It was um, potentially at any point suddenly you fall through and there was 500 meters of ocean underneath which was uh, you know very 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 cold you know four or five degrees near freezing um in the southern ocean so we walked and i remember walking completely blind couldn't hear anything because the rotors were so loud the air was incredibly difficult to stand up in because the rotors couldn't stop because it, you know you couldn't actually land on this thing We went up to the helicopter. I remember thinking this helicopter, which had the step up here, which is a bit difficult to get onto, jumped on. And there were people with us who were slightly older than me, so, you know, in in their 60s, who couldn't quite get up. So we had to drag some of those guys up, got into the helicopter, squashed right in. The outside was blinding white. The inside was completely pitch black, of course. So it took a few minutes to get used to it uh, and get used to the sort of difference. And once we had got used to the difference, the door had been shut and we were up. The helicopter was incredibly smooth. We were up in the air. And I remember think, looking at that point, that the adrenaline was still flowing. I thought, I want to see what it's like outside. So I turned to my left, and the pilot was there. I didn't want to disturb him, obviously. Uh, but I looked over his shoulder, and I could see this field of ice. This field of ice that we'd been in for the last 12 days. And I saw our ship. It was absolutely minuscule. And there was ice in every direction. I couldn't see the edge of it at all. This was our environment. This is the thing that kept us there, would not have let us go like a vice. We flew, we saw the Chinese ship, the Zhuelong, which was also now stuck in the ice, seven kilometers away, which had lent us their helicopter, by the way, to take us to the edge of the ice where the Australian ship was waiting. We got down at the edge of the ice 20 minutes later, Again, did the reverse, the blinding white light outside as the door opened, a completely freezing cold temperature of the ice sort of hits you in the face. People sort of guiding us towards the ship, got to the Aurora Australis, this enormous orange icebreaker and climbed up the hull to get inside. And I remember walking inside, uh, being guided in, because we're now technically in different territory. We're now in Australia, um, in a different time zone also, by the way. Walking in and being guided through the corridors up and down and in ships, you know, the the, the corridors are small, uh, the doors are small, you 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 have a huge amount of clothing on you to keep you warm and, you know, it's quite difficult to get through everything. But just being rumbled through all of this stuff and emerging into the ship's mess where the ship's crew were clapping and they were clapping and, and they were clapping and smiling at us despite the fact that they'd been completely shafted for their entire Antarctic expedition that year because, you know, they had to rescue us. And they were smiling, and one of them sort of grabbed me and, and, and pulled me into a hug. I didn't know who this guy was. I thought, personal space, dude. Uh, yeah. uh, and, and, and he grabbed me, and he said, look, you're, you're home. You're home. You're home, he said to me. And I was like, okay. And he just looked at me, <laughs> and he said, it's okay. You're safe now. And only then <laughs> did I really understand just how dangerous all of what I'd done was. Thanks.
0: That was Alec Shah. Alec is a journalist, author, and broadcaster focusing on stories about science. He is the science correspondent at ITV News. Before that, he spent a decade at The Guardian and made programs for the BBC. Stay tuned for the next story after this message from our sponsor. This week's podcast is brought to you by HelloFresh. Whether you're a busy professional couple, a large family that runs at a breakneck pace, or someone who simply wants to start cooking more, HelloFresh makes it easier, tastier, and healthier than ever to enjoy the experience of cooking new recipes and eating together at home. From creating the recipes and planning the meals, to grocery shopping, and even delivering all of the pre-measured ingredients, HelloFresh delivers right to your door so you can skip the trip. HelloFresh currently offers customers a classic box, veggie box, or a family box. Customers can order three, four, or five different meals per week designed for either two or four people. New recipes are created every week. HelloFresh sent me one of their classic boxes, and it was great. The ingredients were fresh and amazing. The delivery and simple packaging are great for my schedule. I love the feeling of making fresh-cooked food myself, and there's no waste. Normally, with leftover ingredients, I put them in the fridge and forget about them until I have to throw them out. With HelloFresh, each one is measured exactly, so there's no waste and no worry. They also have two full-time registered dietitians on staff who review each recipe and ensure it is nutritionally balanced, and there's new recipes each week. If you're like me, busy as hell in the day working, but also likes to cook, then HelloFresh is fantastic. For $35 off your first week of deliveries, visit HelloFresh.com and enter Collider when you subscribe. That's HelloFresh.com, code Collider. Welcome back. Our second story today is from Rita Tavares. It was recorded in August 2016 at the Wild Project in New York City. The theme was The Unknown.
2: So I started writing poems when I was 80 years old. I didn't understand by then, but this was a need I had, and I still have. At 14, I also started playing the guitar. Um, That was another need. But when it became time to go to college, um, I learned that being a troubadour was not offered as a career in Portugal, where I grew up. So I picked sciences, but to my parents' dismay, I was not interested in becoming a doctor or an engineer. I picked research and being a scientist, which is far from practical. But I decided if this whole writing poems and playing the guitar thing that had to do with feelings wasn't quite working to explain the world, then I would use science and biology, my work. So I did that for the following 15 years. And that landed me in San Francisco for my PhD. But I guess that this rational explanation of stuff wasn't working so well because I found myself depressed. And so I saw a psychiatrist and I started seeing a therapist once a week. So there I go and the therapist would ask me, you know, what all therapists ask, what do you feel? And I would reply, well, I think that very rationally, and she would insist, no, what do you feel? And I would say, I think, and back then, one thing I thought a lot were my ex-boyfriend's psychological troubles, so there was James, and I switched all the names, so no one will get compromised, but there was James, who was dark and mysterious, but somehow was not over with his ex. And then there was Jimmy, which was much more promising in the beginning, but then turned out to be afraid of commitment. And my therapist would ask me, but what does that make you feel? And I would say, well, I think that Jimmy clearly needs a therapist. So I started getting more and more interested in this whole psychology business then. And I actually started diagnosing all these axes. So there was Tommy another crushing breakup, and I told my therapist, Tommy definitely has schizoid personality disorder. And she would ask me, how does that make you feel? And I said, well, he has tricks of attention deficit and currently suicidal ideation. And she would insist, what does that make you feel? And I just didn't get it. Um, But she kept insisting. Um, I kept reading more about psychology. And then I had been seeing seeing her for all year. And one day I was sitting there. And like everyone who starts therapy, in the beginning I would say, my parents are great. I have no problems with my parents. But that day I was talking about daddy. You know, daddy issues, mommy issues. So I was talking about my dad. And suddenly I felt my stomach tighten. And this became a burning sensation on my chest, and then it went up my throat, which tightened to, and then there was heat on my face, and I started crying. And this was the first time I cried in therapy after a whole year. And you can imagine the sadistic pleasure of my therapist. Finally, (laughs) she had made it. There was something like feelings. Um, But... um, I must have been a little bit of a masochist because I kept seeing her for another three years. And that was helpful. You know, I was crying more often, having feelings. I was aware of this whole thing. Um, but then I knew a trick. I was a scientist. So I was going to study this. All this feelings business was in the brain. And I was going to study the biological basis of all of this. So like any good neurotic, I moved to New York City. And I started a postdoc in neuroscience, which is what I've been doing since. And when I moved here, of course, I met someone new. Um, This one, it was Portuguese. And he had a very common Portuguese name, John. And John... (laughs) Um, On the first week of the relationship, wanted to marry me and have my babies. And I understand that's called a red flag. But when it came to relationships, I was never very rational. So, um, yeah, I just, you know, kept going. But after a few months, clearly it was not about having babies or getting married anymore. And we broke up and it was pretty hard once again. And uh, what did I do? Well, I found myself a new therapist in New York because I didn't have my San Francisco one anymore. And unlike other rebound relationships, that one actually worked. And I've been seeing her since. Um, But so while all of this was going on, I was still doing my science. And... um, And I realized there was something that I was missing that was deeper than my ex-boyfriend once I started feeling better after that. And that was much deeper and was about me. So then I joined a writer's studio I've been um, going to since as well, and I went back to writing poetry. And about a year ago, I also started playing the guitar again. Um, so, But I needed to keep on with my science activities. So I was writing a grant not too long ago. And what was really interesting after this whole diagnosing thing is that um, this grant was about depression, but um, the funding agency had new guidelines that actually said that we had been doing too many studies comparing healthy people, and who is really healthy, in New York at least, with, say, depressed people, or bipolar people, or personality disorder people. So we had to focus on a process, say, social interactions, and try to understand what in the brain was behind these things. So I thought that was very inspiring. And around that time, I fell in love again. And what happened is that I fell out of love with this person when I learned that he had antisocial personality disorder. Now, don't get me wrong, because I'm not interested in diagnosis anymore, but antisocial personality disorder is what Donald Trump has, and I really didn't want to date Donald Trump, so, um, you know... And also, like I learned my own diagnosis, which used to be called dysthemia, is now called persistent depressive disorder in this new diagnostic manual. Anyway, I'm done with labels. And instead of focusing on this, just like in my science and with everything else, I've been writing more poems. And I wrote a poem to this failed love interest, but then I learned that this poem was not about him as much as it was about me and my own desires. So I will finish this story reading this poem. So I got it here. There we go. I want to have children. I will quit drinking for them. I want to have a child, all three of these. I want to have more offspring than humanly possible within a year. I want to breed an army of madmen, and I will carry them in my arms until the weight breaks my bones. I will not fail to bring my children home. We jump through walls in our nightmares, but not through hoops. We own a ranch in a prairie of dreams. We will braid the hair of our children, which is golden brown and long and curly. Their heads of hair undulating the wind like flags in the middle of an open field. Our children have white dresses, both boys and girls, they are genderless. They don't depend on us. They're all the things we wish we had been and more. And when they drink their own whiskey at age 18, they won't need too much, but they will not stop at too little. At 18, they will know, and they will take the grand tour. Everyone will see they are royal children, something that could have never happened by accident, like us, the royal children of the madman House." I am feeding poems to our children, words about money and songs about freedom. I am saving the money to feed them, and I am taking the vitamins and the magic powders that will get me pregnant once a year and to make an endless supply of milk to feed the tiny pink mouths of our babies. Thank
0: you. (laughs) That was Rita Tavares. Rita is a neuroscientist and a poet. In her science job, she discovered that the human brain sees our social environment in ways similar to how it encodes physical space. She is now investigating how these processes go awry in patients with psychiatric disorders. In her poetry, she uses her pirate persona to write about her travels and her love of lunatics. If you enjoyed today's story or a fan of the podcast, please consider subscribing or writing us a review on iTunes. It helps us climb up the rankings. That helps new listeners find the podcast. This project was supported by Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. The Story Collider is produced by me, Brian Wecht, Aaron Barker, Ari Daniel, Christine Gentry, Shane Hanlon, Rosie Waldron, Cassie Soliday, Nissa Greenberg, and Liz Neely. The podcast is produced by Zoe Saunders, and the theme music is by Ghost. Special thanks to Hackney House and The Wild Project for hosting these shows, and to journalists for getting stuck in the ice so I don't have to. Thanks for listening. This episode of The Story Collider is brought to you by 23andMe.com. Find out what your DNA says about you based on the science behind your 23 pairs of chromosomes. Order your kit today at 23andMe.com collider. That's the number 23andMe.com slash collider.